This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And somebody handed me a helmet and a riot stick and, and said, come on, we're going in the yard and get this thing back under control. And I can remember running down the stairs here thinking, this is really stupid. I could get killed out here, you know? You know, it was one of those feelings that somebody's getting ready to take a shot at you or something. You know, it was just a scary, scary feeling. And in fact, the inmate that started the fire uh, in the kitchen, I could see his hand through the window. It was dark at night, but I could see his hand. It was his left hand. He had a piece of paper that was on fire, and I could see him hold it out and drop it. They never intentionally set the chapel on fire. It was the heat from the kitchen. When I was sitting on that wrestling mat with the body under my feet, and I was eating that sandwich and drinking this red Kool-Aid when the Ada County detectives came in and said, doesn't this bother you? And I said, I guess not, you know. <laughs> I was hungry. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls Disturbing Justice. This is the season profiling all the various uprisings and riots that occurred in throughout the prison's history, and today's episode is about the 1935 riot, The Legend of Chocolate Slim. My name's Anthony. And I am Skye. And let's get to it, Skye. So our sources for today's episode are the Idaho Daily Statesman, Records from Ancestry.com, Library of Congress's Chronicling America Project, The Living New Deal at livingnewdeal.org, Prison Biennial Reports from 1935 to 1936, Unemployment Rate by Year Since 1929 Compared to Inflation and GDP, and The Nine Principal Effects of the Great Depression from TheBalance.com, Social Security Act on OurDocuments.gov, History.com Articles about the Great Depression and Black Sunday, Legion.org, Chaos in Prison, Explaining the Random Nature of Prison Riots by Cynthia L. Blackburn Line from Ohio State University, 1993, IMDB.com, The Big House, The Criminal Code, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, Wikipedia, Works Progress Administration, James J. Braddock, Dust Bowl, Black Sunday, The Big House, 1930, and The Criminal Code, 1931, I am a fugitive from the chain gang, 1932. Picture it, the U.S., 1935. The country is in the middle of the Great Depression, which had begun six years earlier on October 29th, 1929, on the infamous Black Tuesday, though the causes for it are multiple and complex. The New Deal, implemented by Franklin D. Roosevelt and his cabinet, was beginning to lessen the effects. The unemployment rate in 1935 was 20.1% down 1.6% from 1934. By comparison, in May 2020, after effects of COVID-19, unemployment was estimated at 13.3%. New Deal spending boosted GDP growth by 11.1% from 1934. Things were beginning to look a little less bleak. Several New Deal programs were implemented in 1935, though some had more lasting effects than others. On August 15, 1935, President Roosevelt signed the Social Security Act into law, creating a system of old-age benefits for workers, unemployment insurance, aid for dependent mothers and children, and aid for the physically disabled and handicapped. Today, a hope of many years' standing is in large part fulfilled. The civilization of the past hundred years, with its startling industrial changes, has tended more and more to make life insecure. Young people have come to wonder 
what would be their lot when they came to old age. The man with a job has wondered how long the job would last. This social security measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens who will reap direct benefits through unemployment compensation, through old age pensions, and through increased services for the protection of children and the prevention of ill health. We can never insure 100% of the population against 100% of the hazards and vicissitudes of life, but we have tried to frame a law which will give some measure of protection to the average citizen and to his family against the loss of a job and against poverty-stricken old age. It seems to me that if the Senate and the House of Representatives in this long and arduous session had done nothing more than pass this security bill, Social Security Act, the session would be regarded as historic for all time. Ourdocuments.gov calls the Social Security Act a, quote, uniquely American solution to the problem of old age pensions. This was a major financial boon for many elderly Americans during this time of financial insecurity. Social Security remains a facet of American society today, though its current usefulness is often debated. A second major New Deal program was the Works Progress Administration, or the WPA, established on May 6, 1935. The purpose of the WPA was to employ millions of job seekers to carry out public works projects, including the construction of public roads and public buildings. Some major WPA projects included the Tennessee Valley Authority, which brought electricity to rural residents in the Tennessee Valley, the construction of Camp David in Maryland, and the on-ramp to the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Another WPA project, called Federal Project No. 1, employed artists across the nation to bring high-class art to every person around the country. Federal Project No. 1 included the creation of buildings and murals throughout all 50 states, including Idaho. Local Idaho WPA projects include the Arco City Building in Arco, Bear Lake Middle School in Montpelier, Bogus Basin Road in Boise, the Boise Art Museum, Boise State University, called Boise Junior College at its inception, the Community Hall in Sandpoint, Gem County Courthouse in Emmett, Moscow High School in Moscow, North Junior High in Boise, the Recreation Center and Auditorium in Coeur d'Alene, Rural Electrification in Lewiston, Twin Falls Public Library in Twin Falls, and post offices and the murals inside of them at Blackfoot, Bonners Ferry, Buell, Burley, Grangeville, Kellogg, Orofino, Payette, Preston, St. Anthony, Wallace, and Weezer. Wow. (laughs) Uh, uh, So many. Many of these buildings are still in use today. According to two Idaho Daily Statesman articles, in Idaho, the WPA employed 11,373 workers and, by December, had sent out $229,000 worth of checks, totaling about $20 per person. About $374 in 2020. For 1936, a federal warrant promised that the Idaho WPA would receive $46,846 for projects, quote, for educational, professional, and clerical positions, unquote. The majority of that money would go toward a large general survey about farming in the state. Even if things were beginning to look up with programs like the WPA, many U.S. citizens in the Midwest region were suffering not just through the Great Depression, but also through the Dust Bowl. Before the Great Depression, in the 1910s and 1920s, farmers plowed up native grasslands between Nebraska and Texas to grow wheat. However, as the Depression took hold, wheat prices plummeted, and farmers struggled to survive. 
To compound problems, in 1930, a major drought hit the Great Plains, followed by a series of major dust storms in 1931. According to History.com, by 1934, an estimated 34 million acres of previously cultivated land had been rendered useless for farming, while another 125 million acres were losing massive amounts of topsoil due to the dust and windstorms. The area affected by what would eventually become known as the Dust Bowl included western Kansas, eastern Colorado, northeastern New Mexico, Oklahoma, and the Texas Panhandle, stretching from North Dakota to Texas, the Mississippi River Valley, to the Rocky Mountains. On April 13, 1935, disaster struck the Midwest, solidifying the horrors of the combined depression and Dust Bowl for many American farmers. On the afternoon of what is now known as Black Sunday, a thick black wall of sand and dust, hundreds of miles wide and thousands of feet high, started in the Oklahoma Panhandle and moved south, ending near Amarillo, Texas around 7.30 p.m. The combination of dust, erosion, bare soil, and winds caused the dust to move at high and dangerous speeds. According to folk singer Woody Guthrie, the dust was so thick and black that you couldn't see your own hand in front of your face. By the time it ended, it was estimated that 300,000 tons of soil had been displaced, some flying as far away as the East Coast. Though it is unknown if anyone died as a direct result of Black Sunday, hundreds of people were injured and thousands fled and relocated. The storm on April 13, 1935, is considered the worst black dust storm in the nation's history. No large-scale black blizzards have hit the area since. Oh, whew. Dude. 2020, don't get any ideas. Seriously. <laughs> Associated Press writer Robert Geiger is credited with naming the period of severe drought and dust storms the Dust Bowl. On April 15, 1935, two days after Black Sunday, which he himself experienced while stuck in Boise City, Oklahoma. I love that there's a Boise City. Do you think it's pronounced Boise City? Boise, yeah. (laughs) It's totally Boise City, Oklahoma. (laughs) He wrote an article published in the Evening Star from Washington, D.C., titled, If It Rains. In it, he shares the difficult circumstances through which farmers lived during the Dust Bowl. Quote, Black and saffron clouds of dust, spectacular, menacing, intensely irritating to man and beast alike, choking, blowing out tender crops and lasting without mercy for days, have darkened everything but hope and a sense of humor in the dust sector of the Southwest. These are the storms which leaves drifts of dust along the highway and fences. Sometimes dust drifts up to the eaves of farm buildings. It can't be kept out of a house, and dishes have to be washed not three times, but six times daily, before and after every meal. It gets into your clothes, literally into your hair, and sometimes it seems in your very soul. Certainly, it gets under your skin. Oh, man. Can't even imagine. Yeah. However, not everything was bleak for the American working class in 1935. On June 13th, the Evening Star profiled an upcoming boxing match between heavyweight champion Max Bayer and upcoming James J. Braddock. Though Braddock had previously beaten John Corn Griffin, John Henry Lewis, and Art Latsky, all who had been considered contenders for the heavyweight title, Braddock was still considered a, quote, easy payday for Bayer. Evening Star writer Grantland Rice declared, quote, On the face of all preliminary returns, Braddock appears to be outclassed, outclassed in the way of youth and punching power, in durability and height and reach, in ring smartness, craft or cunning, in almost everything but gameness and desperation. Braddock is dead game and willing, but none too fast. He isn't one of the quickest thinkers who ever moved into action, where Bayer is chock full of ring craft and ring cunning with the instinctive reactions of a big cat. Braddock has been rated a desperate man. 
I want someone to describe me as having that <laughs> distinct reaction of a big cat. I love that. Braddock had previously been a professional boxer with a record of 55, 22, and 4, at one point losing a chance to fight for the light heavyweight title in 1928 and fracturing his right hand in several places. Braddock's family fell on hard times during the Great Depression, and Braddock gave up his boxing to work as a longshoreman. While constantly working on the docks and having to use his left hand, his left hand soon became stronger than his right hand. After, quote, being given a fight with John Griffin, Braddock won his way to a fight with Bayer, scheduled for the evening of June 13th at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Braddock entered the fight as a 10-to-1 underdog, as Grantland Rice's article clearly demonstrates. The fight garnered so little inspiration that newspapers estimated that only half of the 75,000 Madison Square Garden seats would be filled. On the morning of June 14th, however, everything had changed. Newspapers around the country announced the result. Braddock had won. Alan Gould, Associated Press Sports Editor, wrote, quote, The man who couldn't win, the 10-to-1 shot who didn't have a chance, 29-year-old James J. Braddock is the heavyweight champion of the world today in the most astounding upset since John L. Sullivan went down before the thrusts of gentleman Jim Corbett back in the gay 90s. He didn't have a chance to cope with the bigger, stronger, harder-hitting Californian, but he kept fighting, punching, piling up points by paying strict attention to the business of the evening. He earned the unanimous decision of referee Johnny McAvoy and the two judges george kelly and charlie lynch bear lost despite a gallant finish because he started too slowly clowned too much and found too late that he could not put over anything resembling a finishing blow against an opponent who gave him few openings and yielded no unnecessary ground because of this fight and his inspiring comeback braddock was given the nickname cinderella man this name became the title of the 2005 film profiling braddock's life and the 1935 bear fight in which russell crowe played braddock James J. Braddock's comeback, coming from a former professional to a dock worker to a world champion, likely inspired many Americans to find the optimism even in the middle of the worst economic depression in the history of the United States. And also, that is one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Cinderella Man is so good. Is it? I have Have you not it. seen it? Well, you haven't, haven't even seen, seen The Sound of Music. So I haven't seen it. Why would you have seen The Cinderella Man? <laughs> <laughs> even if average Americans had reason to hope in 1935, Inmates at the Idaho State Penitentiary did not have the same kind of hope. According to the Warden's Biennial Reports of 1935 to 1936, in 1935, 187 new inmates entered the penitentiary, while 138 were discharged, and had roughly 300 inmates total. Most of the totals that are quoted here come from 1936, as 1935 statistics are subsumed in the 1936 statistics. But much of what applied to 1936 likely applied to 1935 as well. 54% of inmates were aged between 16 and 30, while the oldest inmate was 72 years old. 109 claimed an education level of no more than 8th grade, 41 claimed to have attended school through 12th grade, and 5 claimed some years of college education. 12 claimed education of one year or less, and given most of the levels of education of the inmates, it is unsurprising to find that the majority of inmates worked physical labor jobs. 189 inmates worked blue-collar jobs, including farmer, laborer, miner, mechanic, woodsman, and carpenter. Other jobs included truck driver, bookkeeper, student, stationary engineer, and dairyman. Of the eight female inmates in the women's ward at the time, four of them listed their occupation as housewife. Inmates represented 42 of 48 states in the United States, while 16 inmates were born outside of the U.S. Outside of Idaho, the top states represented were Utah, with 20, Missouri, with 18, Oklahoma, with 15, Illinois, with 13, 
and Washington. With 12. Combined, inmates from the six states that touch Idaho made up only 15% of the prison population. Of the inmates born in countries outside of the United States, three came from Canada, three from China, two from England, two from Russia, and one came from France, Germany, Hungary, Norway, Scotland, Serbia, Slovakia, and the Virgin Islands. This is actually a really interesting t- statistic because mm-hmm. of all the research I've done so far, this is actually one of the most like sort of diverse years in how many people come yeah. from outside of the United States, which is really interesting. Totally. I don't know what it means, but I just think that that's a really interesting statistic. Yeah, yeah. Depression just stirred everything yeah, up and true. people had to flee to wherever yeah. to find work. And if you failed, you turned to crime. <laughs> As we'll see. Yeah. 290 inmates were white, while nine were black, five were red, the derogatory term meaning Native American, and only one was racially described as yellow, most often meaning Asian. Of the 305 inmates, about 33% had to serve a minimum sentence of one year. 60 were serving from 1 to 14 years, the usual sentence for forgery and other check-related crimes. 40 inmates were serving a maximum sentence of life, 2 serving 10 to life, 19 serving 25 to life, and 19 serving life outright. In fact, the five most common sentences were 1 to 14 years, life, 25 to life, 5 to 10 years, 18 inmates. And 2 to 14 years. 16 inmates. Combined, these five sentences made up 43% of the inmate sentences. One inmate had been serving a sentence since 1902, likely one of the inmates serving for life. 123 inmates had served 167 previous sentences for various crimes, including 48 previous incarcerations in Idaho, 4 from McNeil Island in Washington State, 11 from Leavenworth, eight from San Quentin, and four from Folsom. There was even an inmate from North Carolina Federal Road Camp. 183 inmates were serving time on their first incarcerations. One, however, was serving time for his eighth conviction. Current inmates were sentenced in 41 of 44 Idaho counties, with none convicted in Blaine County. Home to Sun Valley in southern central Idaho. Caribou County. In the southeastern part of the state, bordering Wyoming. Or Clark County. In the central eastern part of the state. Bannock County, most likely Pocatello, accounted for the most sentences, with 25, followed by Canyon and Twin Falls counties with 23 each. This is actually also one of the times that Ada County does not lead in amount of inmates. So, (laughs) In the biennial report, the warden listed 37 different crimes for which the 305 inmates were incarcerated. The most common crime was forgery, with 59 inmates serving, followed by grand larceny, burglary in the first degree, burglary, and robbery. Given that 1935 is in the middle of the Depression, and most of these crimes dealt with attempting to take items and money that did not belong to the perpetrator, these numbers begin to make sense. Other money-related crimes included burglary in the second degree, passing forged check, passing fictitious bill or check, embezzlement, and even assault with intent to rob a bank. Of the more unique crimes, one inmate was incarcerated for exposing another to the infection of a dangerous disease, referring to a venereal disease, accessory after the fact to the crime of burglary, and escape while charged with a felony. Despite their lives of crime, most inmates considered themselves part of some denomination of a Christian religion, from Catholics to Mormons to Methodists to one inmate who claimed himself part of the Truth and Grace Church. One even claimed his religion was a dunkard. 138 inmates listed no religion at all. 
1935-1936, no non-Christian religions were listed in the biennial report. In terms of their habits of life or their attitude towards alcohol and drugs, 86 described themselves as abstinent, 172 as moderate, and 46 as intemperate, or individuals who had problems with drinking. Lastly, a majority of inmates were single or never married. 94 were married, 33 were divorced, 5 were widowed, and 2 were separated. Though 1910 was no banner year for diversity, 1935-1936 had an even more homogenous prison population than 25 years previous. By 1935, most of the buildings currently on site were complete, with the exception of Four House, the largest cell house in the yard, and Five House, the maximum security building, which would not be completed for another 20 years. What is now the territorial prison, then called Cell House Number 3, was condemned as a cell house around 1935, and the plan was to convert it to, quote, a chapel, schoolroom, and amusement building. Around this time, the prison planned to apply for grants from the Public Works Administration, the PWA, for the funds to make such changes. 1890 cell house, two house, and three house were all usable cell houses capable of holding about 600 inmates, double its population of roughly 300. In the biannual report of 1929 to 1930, prison officials bought 532 acres used to establish a prison farm at Eagle Island, approximately 15 miles away from the main prison site, where they grew fruits and vegetables and raised cattle and poultry, both for consumption within the prison and for profit, selling it to the public. It was also announced in December 1935 that a fish hatchery, another WPA project, would be created on the Eagle Island prison farm. To give an idea of what kind of produce inmates grew at Eagle Island, an Idaho Daily Statesman article from December 26, 1934 states, quote, The state penitentiary had the banner guest list. However, for counting trustees and the inmates at the Eagle Island prison farm, the total attendees for Christmas dinner there were 249 to be fed. Virtually all the dinner, save for the more exotic items such as cranberries, yam, and coffee, was raised right on the prison's own farmlands. Turkeys, white spuds, celery, canned vegetables and fruits, butter, cream, and ice cream all came from penitentiary produce. To give you an idea of how important the Eagle Island Ranch was, not just to the prison but also to the state, an article from January 12, 1935, declared that a new bill had passed the Idaho legislature allotting $460,946, equivalent to over $8 million in 2020, to various institutions around the state. The penitentiary Eagle Island Farm received $19,212 in state appropriation funds, over $350,000 in 2020, for the year of 1935. In comparison, State Hospital South and Blackfoot received over $18,000 in funding. State Hospital North received about $14,000, and the Idaho Supreme Court had only $8,000 allotted to them. The relationship between the state and the prison farm was give and take. The Eagle Island Farm gave back. In 1935, the Eagle Island Ranch and Prison Farm returned $12,309.71 to the state treasurer that year, all funds coming from selling food produced on land to the Idaho public. It was not just prison farming that benefited from WPA programs. In 1935, Warden Ira J. Taylor helped enhance the prison educational facilities through a federal grant from the Federal Adult Education Program, a project of the Works Progress Administration. Through the WPA funds, prison officials developed classes such as music, mechanics, Spanish, English, art, and typewriting, among others. Warden Taylor stated, quote, 
The entire program has an enormous benefit on the general morale of the institution, since this work has taken place of what otherwise amounts to almost forced idleness. This education program would remain an important part of the prison life and prison rehabilitation of the Idaho State Penitentiary for the rest of its history. Okay, now let's talk about some people who were involved, and we are going to start with a good friend of the podcast, or soon to be, Captain Gilbert Talley. Oh, he's my favorite. <laughs> he's the best. So he was one of the administrators under Warden Taylor in 1935. He was captain of the yard. He was first hired as an assistant captain of the yard to Captain A.A. A. Stevens in 1933, but Tally himself was soon promoted. So let's get to know him a little bit because he is a main figure in the prison's 1935 riot, but not for the reasons that you might think. <laughs> Gilbert Harvey Tally was born in Gaylord, Kansas on February 12th, 1881 to Wesley and Emma Tally. He was the oldest of five kids with one brother, William, and three sisters, Helen, Lois, and Edna. In 1888, the family moved to Sweet, Idaho, where they soon became, as Williams obituary put it, quote, pioneer residents of Gem County. In 1907, he married Viola L. Ward, a native-born Wisconsinite in Boise. Their only son, George, was born on December 18, 1911. Though he registered for the draft during World War I, the card is dated September 12, 1918. The conflict ended in November 1918, making it highly unlikely that he served in the armed forces during the war. In order to be a pioneer resident of Gem County, as the newspaper suggested, Gilbert had to take chances and make investments. In 1909, an Idaho Daily Statesman article placed Gilbert Talley as vice president of a local bank in Sweet, which had a capital investment of $10,000. Approximately $288,000 in 2020. He was also the proprietor of a local Sweet dry goods store, which he owned with his brother William, called, quite fittingly, Talley Brothers Store. <sighs> Though William retired from the store in 1924, Gilbert remained in the dry goods business through 1930, as the census lists his occupation as a salesman. In March 1933, he took a job at the Idaho State Penitentiary as a guard under A.A. Stevens. When Stevens retired in March 1935, Gilbert was promoted to captain of the yard. Now, we'll leave the story of Captain Talley here for a little while. He will play roles in two more riots, and we can close out his story in 1958. In 1935, however, it was unlikely that Captain Talley knew that his authority would be tested within the first nine months of his new position. The 1935 riot was less of a riot than perhaps more of an uprising, especially when compared to the riots that will be covered in the episodes through the rest of the season. Uprisings may still even be too strong of a word for what happened in the prison on November 19, 1935. However, inmates who participate in uprisings, even as mild as the one, take inspiration from somewhere. As discussed in the episode about the 1910 uprising, we saw how much an escape attempt in Idaho was inspired by a similar event in Folsom, California. It's not that inmates are unoriginal in protesting problems in the prison. Instead, it seems more likely that inmates seeing a successful uprising hope for the same in their own institution. Thirty years after the uprising in Folsom, events in Kansas may have had an effect on the uprising that broke out in Idaho two years after that. According to an article from the Evening Star from Washington, D.C. on May 30, 1933, the administration at the Kansas State Penitentiary in Lansing, Kansas, had organized a baseball game for the inmates to watch in the prison between two American Legion teams on Memorial Day weekend. And for those of you who don't know, the American Legion is a veteran service organization, quote, aimed at advocating patriotism across the U.S. through diverse programs. 
During the game, while everyone was distracted, one inmate snuck up behind Warden Kirk Prather and pinned his arms behind his back. In a similar move to what happened at Folsom in 1903, seven other inmates joined the first one and used Prather as a shield against guards who would try to stop them. Upon reaching the front gate, they forced Prather to give the word to open the front gate. Uh, once the gates opened, an automobile was waiting for them. The inmates bound Prather with wire, shoved him into the car, and fled. One guard, John Stewart, fired after the automobile, but the escapees armed themselves, shot back, hitting him in the right arm. But it was not just real-life escapes, riots, and uprisings that could have inspired the Idaho inmates. Fictional accounts of prisons, riots, and escapes were common, especially during the 1930s. Crime and mob movies were some of the most popular movies of the decade. Three films released between 1930 and 1932 glorified prison life and painted riots and uprisings as necessary to justice, and all were ranked in the top 50 films of the year they were released. Of course, it's impossible to tell if any of the inmates in the penitentiary in 1935 had seen the popular prison movies of the 30s, but popular culture has always had a large impact on the national culture at large. We're getting into my territory now. Yes, we are. (laughs) So, in June 1930, MGM released The Big House, one of the first commercially successful prison movies. Based on the 1929 uprisings in the Colorado State Penitentiary that left 13 dead, and starring Robert Montgomery, Wallace Beery, and Chester Morris, The Big House tells the story of Kent, who's serving 10 years for manslaughter after killing a man with his car. He shares a cell with two long-timers, Butch and Morgan. When Butch goes to solitary confinement after sparking a protest over prison food, he passes his knife to Kent. When their cell is searched, Kent hides the knife in Morgan's bed, which cancels Morgan's parole, and Morgan is put into solitary confinement himself. Morgan manages to escape from the prison and goes to a bookstore run by Kent's sister, who Morgan has been attracted to since he saw pictures in Kent's cell. They fall in love, but eventually he is caught and sent back to prison. After returning to prison, Butch plans an uprising, though Morgan tries to tell him that he wants to go straight. Kent goes to the warden to inform. During the riot, Butch kills a guard while Morgan disarms the prisoner assigned to keep the guards hostage and locks the guards in to keep them safe. Kent is killed in the crossfire of the riot. Butch then goes after Morgan, believing Morgan was the, quote, stoolie who told the warden of the planned uprising. In the ensuing gunfight, Butch is killed and Morgan is eventually pardoned for his actions during the riot. The Big House was the 21st most popular film of 1930, and Frances Marion, who wrote the story and dialogue, won the Academy Award for Best Writing Achievement, and the movie was nominated for Best Picture. Motion picture critic John Mosher of The New Yorker said of the film, quote, So expert are many of the scenes, so effective the photography, so direct and spare the dialogue, that certain obvious, silly, and dull moments are overlooked. Though it wasn't an overall smash hit, as one of the first prison movies, it was incredibly influential for the movies to come. The next one would come less than a year later. On January 3, 1931, Columbia Pictures released The Criminal Code, starring Walter Houston, Phillips Holmes, Constance Cummings, and Boris Karloff. Robert Graham is sentenced after killing another man during a drunken brawl. Originally assigned to the prison jute mill, the hard work begins to take its toll on Graham, and the prison physician recommends a change of assignment before permanent psychological damage sets in. The warden makes Graham his valet and Graham begins to spend time with the warden's daughter, Mary. One of Graham's cellmates tries to escape, but is killed in the process because a stool pigeon ratted him out. Graham's other cellmate, Ned Galloway, vows revenge on the informant. Graham walks in as Ned kills the other inmate. 
When the warden finds Graham with the body, he knows Graham didn't commit the murder, but demands Graham tell him who did. Graham sticks with the convict code of silence and is sent to the hole for it. The Criminal Code was ranked number 37 on the most popular films of 1931, and according to Wikipedia, encourages viewers to question the contemporary legal and penal systems. Mordant Hall, critic of the New York Times, said the movie, quote, granted that Howard Hawke's direction is, for the most part, intelligent and firm. There are occasional sequences which he spoils by extravagant ideas or by leaving too little to the imagination. Still, The Criminal Code was another important film, not just in the motion pictures of 1931, but in a change of portrayals of prisons and inmates in national society. The last and most popular prison film of the, ni- of the early 1930s, and the one with the longest title, was I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang from 1933, starring Paul Muni, Preston Foster, and Glenda Farrell, Warner Brothers... I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang tells the story of Sergeant James Allen, who returns from World War I, who got caught up in a robbery after suffering financial downturn and is sentenced to 10 years on a southern chain gang. After some time on the brutal chain gang, Allen manages to escape and runs to Chicago, where he becomes successful in the construction business. He gets involved with the proprietor of his boarding house, who finds out about his past and blackmails him into marriage. When he falls in love with another woman and asks his wife for a divorce, she alerts authorities to his whereabouts. The police offer him a pardon if he turns himself in, but when he does, they lock him up anyway. He escapes again, knowing that the only way he'll be able to survive is to return to stealing. The movie was ranked the 15th most popular film of 1933, with a box office return of $1.6 million. Even in Boise, it was one of the most seen movies of the year. Those who saw the movie began to question the legitimacy of the legal system in the United States, which also likely affected those who were incarcerated themselves. Between these three movies of the early 1930s, citizens of the United States were beginning to question the efficiency of the penal system in the country. Those attitudes likely pervaded the prisons themselves as well. These same patterns would manifest themselves in the events profiled this season. But even if these movies were popular, movies are not real life. This season of Behind Gray Walls, Disturbing Justice, as well as the Disturbing Justice exhibit, were made possible by the Boise City Department of Arts and History and the National Endowment for the Humanities. We would like to thank them for their generous support. I sat up in that cage while they were all in the living room. I sat up there with a tear gas gun and uh, in case of a ride, shoot some tear gas over them. They had a cage in the rec hall, and I used to take my tear gas gun and go down and set my cage down there and uh, keep peace, you know. (laughs) As previously mentioned, the fair in the prison dining hall was nothing like the stereotype of prison food today. Because the prison owned several hundred acres of farmland, they were almost completely self-sustained. Trusty inmates grew fresh fruits and vegetables, which they brought to the prison and canned in the prison cannery at number two yard. The trustees also raised cattle and poultry, using the slaughterhouse on site to provide fresh meat for the prison. They also had a prison dairy, which provided fresh milk, butter, and cream. And of course, an Idaho prison would not be complete without potatoes, which the prison farm grew as well. The dinner on November 15, 1935, was no exception to the quality meals the inmates usually received. This evening's meal consisted of beefsteak, carrots, mashed potatoes, brown gravy, cornbread, chocolate pudding, and coffee, which is better than I eat most nights, so it's an excellent excellent dinner. 
Inmates filed into the dining hall, taking their seats at wooden tables, all facing forward. At mealtimes, inmates were expected to sit down at the table, face forward, eat everything on their plate, and not speak. Not eating all the food in front of you, speaking, or creating any kind of disturbance could cost the inmate his meal and or any other privileges. Despite the meal, according to the Idaho Daily Statesman article, about 30 or 35 inmates had filed into the dining hall when four or five unnamed ringleaders kicked over one of the dining tables and began throwing dishes around. It escalated into a food fight. Or what the newspaper described as a small riot. With inmates throwing food across the room at guards and at each other. Though there was a guard with a weapon stationed at the bird's nest, an area on the east side of the building, Warden Taylor decided the best way to quell the situation was not with guns, but with knockout gas. In Warden Taylor's own words, quote, We just broke a knockout gas bomb on the floor, and pretty soon we were grabbing the ringleaders as they came out, and marched them straight to confinement in the cell block, where they were kept without food until the next day. Once the gas had been released, the riot was quickly quelled, and order was restored, with 16 inmates confined to their cells. During the uprising, Captain Gilbert Talley began scrambling out a window. Though we do not know at what time he did this, it seems likely that a seasoned captain of the yard like Captain Talley would not abandon his post unless gas had been released into the room. Regardless, though, as Talley was exiting the window, an inmate threw his chocolate pudding at Talley, hitting the captain square in the seat of his pants. According to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, I'm sorry, Tally. I love you, but it's just funny. <laughs> According to Frank E. Rigby, a former guard who was interviewed in 1992. Well, <laughs> I can tell you a little story about oh, that, Tally. Yeah, I do. We had a little riot in the dining room one time, and Cap Tally was in the dining room, and they started throwing things around, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> Cap Tally got the name of Chocolate Slim because he was going out the window and somebody hit him in the rear end with a chocolate pudding. <laughs> and they, they, they called Chocolate Slim after that. This was probably a difficult nickname for Tally to live down for the rest of his career. Can you imagine being like, dang it. And, That's you know, ins- it was almost forgotten until <laughs> until now. Sorry, Chocolate Yeah, Slim. we probably wouldn't have known unless, unless Rigby had told us. Yeah. Two days after the uprising took place, word finally reached the Idaho Daily Statesman. The unnamed author of the article asked Warden Taylor what the reasons for this riot could have been, writing, quote, I am at a loss, said the warden, to account for the cause of the outbreak. We heard something about the boys kicking about the way in which the potatoes were cooked. But they had a good meal before them that day, and I can't see why they were kicking on it. I believe it is just the unrest that arises from a certain element we always have in such institutions as this, and which we can't foresee or prevent. There was never a definitive statement made as to why this uprising occurred. So, there are several theories as to why riots and uprisings happen in prison. One that may help explain this particular riot is chaos theory. The theory states that a linear, structured world does not exist. Instead, it is a world of chaos, where chaos is present in every kind of system. For nearly all systems, complete prediction is impossible and random behavior is inevitable. However, that does not mean there are not patterns within this chaotic world. From an article by Cynthia L. Blackburn Lyon from Ohio State University in 1993, quote, Chaos theorists and scientists know that as a system moves into chaotic behavior, the chaos increases and apparently seems to feed off itself. 
Importantly, chaos theorists have also discovered that the imposition of structure or order on any system will lead to or increase chaotic behavior. So if this is all sounding confusing, here's an example of chaos theory. When studying weather prediction, even a supercomputer could not predict the weather, quote, because weather is dependent upon initial conditions as each equation was calculated. The initial conditions change just enough to change the equation. So basically what it's saying is, you know, you can try to predict the weather based on initial conditions, but initial conditions are always changing so much so that accurate prediction is impossible. So continuing in this example, when zoomed out on the larger data, there appeared to be a pattern that could be predicted. But when you zoom in at individual data points, there's no pattern or predictability because initial conditions change so unexpectedly. What does this have to do with prisons, you might be asking? Well, Blackburn Line argues that prisons are a closed system that do not behave like the rest of the world. Prisons and prison riots are a unique kind of chaotic collective behavior. Though most riots appear to have a similar catalyst, i.e. bad food, poor prison conditions, mistreatment by guards, and follows similar patterns, it begins with unrest from the prison population, includes inmate violence, and usually ends with the inmates at administration finding some kind of compromise toward inmate demands. Each individual riot cannot be predicted. It cannot be predicted when a riot may break out, how long it will last, how many inmates might be involved, or how violent it will be. This 1935 riot is a prime example of chaos theory in prison. Even the warden, who had intimate knowledge of the conditions of the prison at the time in which this disturbance occurred, could not have predicted, nor did he have a sufficient explanation as to why the inmates were so displeased with conditions and why their choice of expression of such displeasure was essentially an escalated food fight. Was the food quality poor? Were the inmates looking to cause trouble? Were the inmates simply bored with their monotonous lifestyle? It seems that we may never know. So what do we learn from this minor uprising in 1935? First, sometimes there is no explanation behind a prison riot. Sometimes it just happens. As historians, theoreticians, or armchair detectives, we can hypothesize all we want. But if chaos theory is correct, riots inside prisons and outside of them happened and will continue to happen at completely random, unpredictable intervals. Second, movies are important. Sky is particularly emphatic on this point. We don't know how many, if any, inmates at the Idaho State Penitentiary in 1935 saw The Big House, The Criminal Code, and or I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. But even if they didn't, plenty of the population of the United States did, and ideas do not live in a movie theater vacuum. Though these movies did not incite a major riot like we'll see in the upcoming episodes, they likely influenced not only how inmates saw prison and prison life, but as well as how people from the community began to view the justice and penal systems of the United States. Finally, if you're in a food fight wherein chocolate pudding is involved, it's best not to try to crawl out of a window with your rear end facing the fight. You may end up with a sticky pair of pants and an embarrassing nickname for the rest of your career. <laughs> nice. Well, oh. what? that's actually probably one of my favorites because it's just... I mean, Chocolate Slim is yeah. it's a great story. The legend of, of Chocolate Slim. And no one know. got hurt yeah. except for probably Tally's pride. Uh, probably the, the <laughs> knockout gas probably yeah, the, stung a little, injuries, but I yeah. mean, that was... What a, what a fun one, because some of our other ones are not as fun. Yeah. They're not as fun. There, yes. So the future episodes, we're going to get into more violence mm-hmm. and more destruction. Mm-hmm. So if you thought this is all you have to offer, mm-hmm. just stay tuned. Yeah. 
because if you've come to the old pen, you've likely uh, noticed a couple buildings and wondered why why does this building look like a uh, like a, a cavernous shell, of a uh, shell? Yeah, and we'll get to that. Yeah. So stay tuned. Yes, our first two were a little bit more mild in the sense that there was no real property damage, not too many injuries, but things are going to start getting real. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for tuning in this week. We'll uh, catch you all next week. Do your own time. Do your own number. See ya. Bye. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more old Idaho penitentiary information and to see the mugshot of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, which we love to get, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.